Well, I think all of us here have heard of a, a midlife crisis, but how many of you, raise your hands, if you've ever heard of a quarter-life crisis? Okay, this is a new thing. I've been reading up on it. I've been learning about quarter-life crisis, and I, it's a real thing. It really is a real thing. And the reason I think that it is a real thing is because as I've been reading all these different articles on quarter-life crises that apparently are very, very prevalent now, what happens and what has happened is that as you are young, and maybe you've experienced this, you have this pressure to succeed. You have this pressure to perform. You have this pressure to look a certain way. You have this pressure to get to a certain place professionally. And all of these things have been mounting upon you and at some point, quarter life, 25 to 35, you break down because you haven't achieved what you thought you were going to achieve at that moment, at that stage in your life. I see all of us as children, right? We, we imagine the life that we're going to have when we got older. We imagine that we we're going to have this wonderful, perfect life. And pretty much here's what we thought. I don't know. Maybe you were different from me, but I think this goes as a standard. You think I'm going to find love. I'm going to start a family and it's going to be a great family. I'm going to have a house or a condo with a wonderful view. And maybe it'll have enough room for a man cave or a woman cave, right? And you're going to have your own little room. You can put your TV, you can put your book. That's what I want. I wanted books everywhere, huge TV. I could smoke a cigar or a pipe in there and it's okay. Cause it's like a hum- it's like a humidor inside of there. It'd be amazing. So you want, you're going to have your man cave, your perfect house, your, or your great condo. You're going to drive a really nice car. And you're going to have really good friends and your friends are going to be like eye stock photo friends. You know what I mean when I say that? Like, have you ever seen eye stock photo where it's like they're having the best time ever and they're just like in the middle of a field? That's going to be your friends, right? You're going to have great friends. You're going to have an awesome job with really good perks and you're going to love what you do. You're going to take great vacations and be very exotic and you're going to take them frequently. You're going to be in shape, but you can still eat cupcakes It's going to be perfect. You can eat whatever you want, but you're still in shape. And also, most importantly, you're going to be making a difference. Your life will be making a difference. And this is what you imagine, right? This is what you think. This is what you're working towards. This is what we're all striving in some way. Some different ones may be different for each of us, but we want these things. And we think to ourselves, trials are going to happen. Hardship is going to happen. But I'm going to push through. I'm going to overcome. And it's going to be good. It's it's all going to be okay. And then it's not. Right? Maybe love has not been very easy to find. And social media reminds you of that over and over and over and over again. Or maybe you found love, but you realize that love is not as easy as you thought it would be. It's very complicated and it's very difficult. Starting a family has been maybe difficult for you. And you never associated loss and family together. You are coming to the realization now that you're probably never going to have a man cave or a woman cave. You are going to have a place that you probably can still, you're judging whether or not you can shop at Costco and not look like a doomsday prepper, right? Because you don't have that much room to fit 45 toothpaste bottles that they sell for 47 cents, right? So you're like, okay, I'm not going to have the same house. I'm not going to have the same condo that I imagined. You realize that nice cars are expensive and you're like, ah, that's, I don't know if I want to spend the money on that car that I always want. Your friends are definitely not iStock photo. It has been really difficult to find good community and good friends. Your job has had a lot of starts and stops and U-turns, and maybe your job has just become a job and you never wanted to have just a job. 
Or maybe you're not where you wanted to be professionally. You're not where you thought you would be professionally. You realize that uh, staying in shape takes a lot of work. And so you think to yourself, man, the closest that I get to like staying in shape is watching American Ninja Warrior on TV. And then last of all, you're thinking, you're beginning to rethink the whole making a difference thing because you're like, I don't even know if that's possible. And I don't really know what that means anymore because life has happened and it's different than you imagined. And it is full of delays and broken expectations and trials and heartache and hardship. And it kind of feels like you're just treading water. Maybe you resonate with some of these things. You just feel like you're in the ocean and you're just treading water. You're just staying alive. Or maybe life is going well for you, but you remember a time where you felt like that. Right now, life is, is full of joy and there's a positivity and happiness and contentment. But though you're walking on the road forward, you know the ocean is right there. And you know that at any moment, you could be back in the ocean treading water. So we have these crises in our life. Maybe it's a quarter life. Maybe it's a midlife. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But life is not what we imagined And I think sometimes we ask ourselves, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I endure trial and heartache and hardship? How do I stop treading water? And Jesus here in John 16 actually tells us exactly the steps and and how we as believers are to stop treading water and to face trials and temptation and find contentment and purpose and joy amidst those things and even in those moments where things aren't going as you hoped or as you thought they would. Look at the very first verses with me. Verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, I've I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. It's right before in your text. He's been talking now for two chapters. They've been sitting there. They've been listening to Jesus, the disciples, and he's been telling them all these things. And he's saying, I've been telling you all of these things so that you don't fall away. Because listen, life is going to get hard. It's not going to be what you imagine. You're going to have a lot of broken expectations. And I'm telling you these things so that you stay on the path. You keep walking forward. And then he tells them something that must have been very difficult for them to hear. He says, let me tell you what is in store for you all. He says, You're going to be put out. You're going to be kicked out of synagogues. Okay, the synagogue is like the social hub. This is where community and your reputation is bolstered. And this is everything in the city. You're going to be kicked out of the most important place in the city where you find your significance. You're gone. You're going to get kicked out of there. And not to mention, the hour is coming when whoever kills you. So you're going to die. (laughs) That those that kill you think that they are actually offering service to God. They think they're doing a good thing. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So Jesus is saying, as they're sitting there, and he's talking, been talking to them for two chapters. He's saying, I'm saying all these things to you because I don't want you to fall away. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's coming. You're going to be kicked out of the most important place in the city that you have garnered so much of your identity. You're gone. And you're going to be killed. And the people that are going to be killing you are going to think that they're doing the right thing. They're doing a service to God. But they haven't known me, and they have not known the Father. They actually don't have a relationship with God. Imagine what the disciples in this moment are thinking. I think this gives us a little bit of clarity into what takes place a little bit of time later, right? We're always perplexed why Peter denies Christ three times. He says he's not going to, but then in the midst of it, he denies Christ three times to his face as Jesus is being falsely accused and going through trial. Why? Maybe Peter is thinking about what Jesus has said here in John 16, that you're going to be kicked out of the synagogues and you're going to be killed. And Peter's like, it's not my time. I don't, I'm not ready. I don't know Jesus. 
Right after Jesus is killed, what is it? What do we read the disciples are doing? They're hiding because they're afraid that John 16 is going to happen, that they're next, and they're going to be killed. But we know from history that things change. At some point, something happened in the life of the disciples to where they stopped hiding, they stopped denying and rejecting Christ, and they actually went out and gave their entire lives to sharing the gospel and the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on the cross, his death and his resurrection, with the entire world. And they were, in fact, kicked out of synagogues, and all of them were killed except for one who was exiled. Because they really believed in the gospel. And sometimes I think we take the disciples and we think to ourselves, like, they're these superhuman people that are on another spiritual level, and God has probably given them something that he has not given me. And so I could never make a difference or do anything for God on that level because I have not received what they've been given. Well, that's not true. They have the same faith as you. And as Jesus is going to say here, they have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, the helper. Maybe the difference is they listened and they followed and they asked him for guidance. He says here, Jesus, he continues in verse five. He's, he says that I, I'm going to him who sent me and none of you have asked me, where are you going? So they've been sitting there silent. They literally haven't said a word, which probably makes sense because they've just heard that they're going to die. And Jesus says that I, I'm telling you that I'm leaving. I'm hinting at this and you should have picked it up. And none of you have asked where are you going? And then he says in verse six, but I've said these things to you and sorrow has filled your heart. You're like, no, duh, sorrow has filled their heart. They're going to be kicked out of the synagogue and be killed. And Jesus continues. He says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Take, Take a moment and think about how the disciples are receiving that. They're sitting there for two chapters as Jesus is talking to them and they're just completely silent. They're not saying anything. And Jesus tells them that he's telling them all these things so that they don't fall away. They continue to walk forward. And then he says, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, most important, influential place in the city where you want to be known. You're going to be denied access. And you're going to be killed because you believe and trust and follow me. And then he says to them, and sorrow has filled your heart. But listen, it's okay because I'm going to go and it's good for you. Can you imagine how they're receiving that? Wait, what? We've been with you for a few years now. It has been wonderful. It's been hard. There's been some ups and downs. We've had given up a lot to follow you, but it's been great. Jesus, we've been with you. You are a Messiah. You are God in the flesh. You are right here next to us. We eat with you. We spend time with you. We pray with you. We see you do incredible things. How could it ever be better than this? And Jesus says, it's going to be better because I'm going to send the helper who's going to be with you forever. At all times, at all moments. That's what he says in the next verse. He says, and I'm, for I do not go away, for if I do not go away, the helper or the advocate or the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we've been working through this series in the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about how the helper will, will teach you the things of God. And he helps you to to understand God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and and humility. He roots these things in your mind and in your heart. 
And Jesus here is wanting to get very specific with the disciples as he's been talking with them. He says, listen, I want you to understand something else that the helper does, the Holy Spirit's role as a counselor. Because you're going to face trials and temptations and heartaches and your expectations are going to be broken and life is not going to be what you imagined, but it's better that I'm gone because the helper, who is a counselor, is going to guide you and he's going to bring you truth. He says, when he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 8 and verse 9, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So I think a lot of times when we see the word convict in Scripture, what do we automatically think of? Guilt and shame, right? So you're reading this, and Jesus is saying, it's better that I go because the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's a helper. He's a counselor. And he's going to convict the world concerning sin. And you're like, how is that better? He's going to bring guilt and shame. He's going to bring acknowledgement of my failures and of my sin and all the ways that I'm not measuring up. I think it's very easy for many of us, and maybe you've grown up in this environment where you've been taught this, right? That you've come to know and it's been reinforced to you, maybe from the pulpit, maybe from peers, maybe from your family, maybe from a Bible study, whatever the case may be, that God wants to convict you by the Spirit of your sin so that you know that you don't measure up, so that you know that you're not good enough for God, that you're not a good enough Christian You're not religious enough. You have to do some more things in order to clean yourself up so God will love you, so God can actually use you. You want to know why the disciples were able to do great things? Well, they were great people. You're not there yet. You need to work at it. You need to repent, which means sometimes you can think that I just need to fix myself. I need to get better. And so what happens when you begin to think this, this is how you hear this passage, verses 8 and 9. You hear it like this. The Holy Spirit will convict you concerning your sin and your righteousness or lack thereof. And there will be judgment on you because of your sin. Why? Because you don't believe. See, this is sometimes what you can maybe fall into believe or maybe has been told to you that if you're not good enough and if you don't perform enough for God, it's because of your disbelief. It's because you don't believe enough because you're not trying hard enough. It's because you're not religious enough. And in order for you to not receive some of this judgment and this condemnation, this guilt and this shame that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to you, he's going to convict in you, you need to begin to work at it. You need to get better. You need to become a better Christian, more religious. And what happens if you think this is is two options, right? Option A, the result is You work really, 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 really hard for God, and nobody ever calls you on it. Why? Because working for righteousness or or working to do good things is good. That's a positive thing. No one's going to say, stop trying to do the right thing. But what happens is in your mind, you're doing it because you want to be accepted by God. and You don't want God's judgment. And you're afraid that if you mess up, God is going to remove things from your life that you love. Maybe you're going to think in your life like, that's why I lost that relationship. That's why I lost that job. That's why I'm in this place that I am right now. It's because God's judging me. 
because of my actions, because of my behavior. And so I need to really work really, really hard to get back in God's good graces. And what happens is whenever you make a mistake, whenever you fail, which we do often, it crushes you. You feel totally inferior. You don't even know if you can go to church. You certainly can't pray. You need to kind of like have a few days of like goodness so then you can pray. And it's really hard for you to understand God's grace. Like the word grace, which means unmerited favor, is really hard for you to absorb. And so what happens is it's also really hard for you to give. And it's really hard for you not only to give to other people, but also for you to give to yourself. So you battle with self-righteousness and and just being destroyed when you make a mistake. That's option A. Option B is what happens is you, you try and you begin to work really hard for God to do the right religious thing and to be a good Christian. And you realize that you're running after an impossible standard and it just becomes tiring. And you begin to question a lot of different things and you say, is this all really worth it? I mean, I'm never going to reach this standard. I'm never going to be able to do these things. And so you make the decision that it's not worth it anymore. And so faith and Christianity and being a part of a church body becomes a part of your past that you revisit every so often for nostalgia or to experience it again. Because it just doesn't feel worth it. You see, Jesus here is not saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come to expose your sin so that you can have this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame so therefore you can change and get right because the trials and the hardships and the broken expectations that you're going through in your life are because you're not believing enough and because you're not doing the right thing so God is judging you. So the Holy Spirit is going to counsel you to let you know all of your failures so you can work on them. He's not saying that at all. See, the word convict means expose. So look at the verse 8 again. He says, and when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will expose the world concerning sin and righteousness. And righteousness could also be understood here as justice. So he's going to expose the world concerning sin and justice and judgment. Still sounds a little condemning if you're reading that, but Jesus clarifies it. Look at verse 9. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. He's connecting sin with disbelief in Jesus. He's specifically connecting here the sin that you have and that I have, that the Holy Spirit exposes in you, is your disbelief in the gospel. It's your disbelief in who Jesus is and what he's done, his life, his, life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promise that he loves you regardless of what you have done or what you will do. That you're not believing that. Think about your sin. Think, I, I was processing this myself this week. If someone comes to you and they criticize you, whether it's constructive criticism or you just know they're purposefully being mean, and your automatic reaction is, who do you think you are? I mean, have you looked in the mirror? Right? Or maybe your response is, oh, okay, you wanted to say a little something about me. Well, let me tell you a little something about you. I've been holding this ammo. It's, it's time, right? You're getting in the stance. Okay, we can do this. We can go for it. Come at me. I'm going to come at you. If that's your response, what are you believing? You're believing that you are good and you are right and you are deserving of respect without question. And someone that's going to come at you and try to criticize you, whether constructively or just because they're being mean 
is such an offense to you because all of your self-worth and your identity is rooted in how you look, what you can achieve, or what you can perform, or your reputation, or the respect that you think you deserve. And so when someone wants to pop your bubble, you're not going to have it. So that's simply just disbelief in the gospel. The gospel is not saying that it's going to be easy for you to receive criticism. It's difficult to receive criticism, whether it's constructive or otherwise. But the gospel does say something about identity. The gospel says that your identity is not to be in how much you can perform, whether for God or for other people. Your identity is rooted in the fact that Christ has purchased your life and your identity by taking all of your failures and all of your weaknesses on the cross. And that God looks at you with love and with grace. And so if someone's going to criticize you, that's okay. You can give grace to yourself because God has given grace to you. And you can give grace to other people even if you think the criticism's not fair. See, it's a disbelief in the gospel. If you're walking through life and you're currently in a place where you're going through hardship and life is not what you expected it would be at this moment and you're treading water and your response is, God, what is wrong with you? I mean, don't you know that I deserve different? I mean, I'm doing all the right things and nothing is working out. Other people are receiving the things that I want and yet they're making all of these mistakes. What about me? See, what you're believing is that because you're, quote-unquote, doing the right thing, God should reward you with comfort as you define it. And that, again, is disbelief in the gospel. You're believing that you deserve something because you've performed and you've worked really hard. And, and, And kind of under that, you're believing that God is judging you, that God is withholding good things from you maybe because you aren't, you're not doing the right thing. The gospel says that Jesus has taken all of your judgment and he has paid for all of your judgment on the cross. And God is not judging you and he never will judge you if you trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, actually, he loves you and he's working good in your life. Even when you can't see it, he's working good in your life. That's what the gospel compels you to believe about your circumstances. Maybe you're struggling with the same sin over and over every day, day after day after day, weekend after weekend after weekend, and you just can't stop. And so your response is, God, I'm really sorry. Short, quick prayer. Not going to do it again. But in the back of your mind, you know, I'm going to do it again. Right? Or it's, this isn't really that big of a deal. I mean, people do way worse. And so you're just going to keep living in it. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that Jesus died for every single one of your sins because every single one of your sins is deserving of God's judgment, but God poured his wrath out on Jesus for you, not only so that your sins could be forgiven, but that you might find fulfillment in Christ. Not all of these other things that you think are going to make you happy instead of running after Christ who actually will bring you joy and peace. See, Jesus is saying here, the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to expose not your sin that will reveal how guilty and dirty you are, but actually he's going to expose your sin that is your disbelief in the gospel. He's going to help you to see gospel deficiencies in your life, how you're acting certain ways because you're not really 
preaching the gospel to yourself in that area of your life. And then he says in verse 10 concerning righteousness or justice, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. See, he's not exposing your righteousness or your lack thereof. He's not exposing that you're not good enough, you're not working hard enough. He's actually exposing, he says, Jesus' righteousness. He's exposing the fact that Jesus lived a life that you couldn't, and he died a death you deserve, and he rose to be your advocate on the right hand of the Father. So when you mess up, Jesus is there advocating for you because God is not going to judge you or pour his wrath out upon you because of Jesus' righteousness that covers you. He's going to expose that to you and remind you of that when you're realizing that you have some gospel deficiencies. But he's also going to expose judgment in verse 11 because the ruler of this world is judged. See, words matter here. He's not saying he's going to expose the judgment that is coming for you. No, no, no. He's saying he's going to expose the judgment that is being handed the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, or Satan. He's going to expose to you that God is not judging you for your deficiencies or for your failure. He's going to remind you that Jesus was righteous and good and perfect on your behalf and that God is actually judging the one that has tempted you in the first place to follow after those different things, to believe those different lies, to help you see the beauty of the cross, that Christ took your judgment away and that God is in fact judging the one that is always tempting you with all these different delusions to help you to understand that maybe I shouldn't follow after the one that's being judged See, the Holy Spirit is bringing acknowledgement of the gospel. That's what he does. He's not exposing your guilt and your shame. He is exposing the gospel to you. In your mind, and your heart, he's rooting that in you. And acknowledgement simply just means acceptance of the truth. And so he's saying, as you walk in your life, and as you have hardship, and if you have delays, and you have broken expectations, and life is not what you imagined it would, it would be, whether... It's because of some decisions you've made or decisions that other people have placed on you. When you're in that moment, the helper, the counselor, he's going to come and he's going to remind you of the gospel. He's going to bring acknowledgement of the gospel. Maybe some ways that you're disbelieving in the gospel, but it's also going to remind you of Jesus's righteousness, that he advocates for you, that God loves you regardless of what you've done or where you are, and that he's actually working good in your life, even when you can't see it, and that he's judging the one that is tempting you. Not you. And the question that I've been asking myself this week as I've been working through this passage and I want to ask you is that, are you listening to that? So I think the disciples were listening, which is why they went out and they gave their life for the gospel. Verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we have to be careful with this passage as well, because sometimes you can read this and you can say, okay, he's going to guide me into all the truth, which can be misconstrued to believe this. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal truth to me that other people may not see. He's going to reveal truth that is good for me and may not be good for other people. See, this is dangerous because this is where you get into heresy and this is where you get into truth as relative. 
There was a, a very prevalent belief system that was a part of the early church, and it was around, it was called Gnosticism. And, and here's what Gnosticism believed. They said that the physical body is dirty and is corrupt, and it is not worthy of redemption or salvation. So do whatever you want with your body. Your body doesn't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing that's good is the spiritual, is your soul. So tend and care for your soul. Don't worry about your body. And this really, belief system really came to be a huge movement in the known world because people read scripture, they were a part of the church, and they said, ah, the whole, like, Jesus is going to redeem my body and he's going to restore the earth, and the fact that God was, like, in the flesh and Jesus, you know, was the son of God and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead physically, like, I don't, I'm not okay with that. It doesn't feel good to me. So I'm going to make Jesus an illusion. He's spiritual. He wasn't actually in his flesh. He was spiritual. And the goal of my life instead is going to try to find some secret knowledge that the spirit of God in the spiritual world I'm going to be led into to reach this status and this place of spirituality. Kind of sounds familiar, right? There's a lot of people that are Gnostics today and they don't know it. Do whatever you want with your body. Your body doesn't matter. All that matters is caring for your spirituality. That is always what is comfortable for you and what feels right to you. And this is connected in our culture with postmodernism, right? You don't read this. This, Like five, ten years ago, postmodernism was like the trendy word. You know, like we're postmodernists, you know. And, And now no one really talks about it because I think that it's just such a part of our society that no one really needs to use the term. And postmodernism in and of itself does not want to be labeled. You know, postmodernism is like the original hipster. They don't want to be labeled. You know, postmodernism really is this. It's the belief that you can interpret anything in an infinite number of ways. It just depends on the interpreter. So they have a very, you know, there's a slogan that's attached to it, which is what's true for you is true for you, right? If it's good for you, if it's comfortable for you, if it's right for you, then that's true for you, it's created truth as relative. And so what's happened is Gnosticism and postmodernism has, in many ways, I think our culture come together, and it's not devoid of the church. It's in the church as well. Because we sometimes can fall into believing that the Spirit will lead us into all truth that is true for us. So maybe you have said, or maybe you've heard people say, or maybe you're currently saying something like this. I don't believe that my God would fill in the blank. I'm just not okay with that passage. And so I'm just, you know, we're going to skip over that. Or to me, Christianity and faith is about fill in the blank. Or I think it's important that you take what you want and what works for you. And then you can just kind of leave the rest to somebody else. Right? This idea that the spirit of God in this spiritual world that was, we're trying to become stronger spiritual creatures and beings that it's going to lead us into truth that is comfortable for us and feels right to us, even if it's not necessarily true, as long as it's true for me. And I think really postmodernism in many ways leads to quarter life and midlife crises. Why? Because it's really easy to say what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me, but it's really hard to live. Because we're competitive creatures, right? We're always comparing each other. 
whether or not we say it out loud, we're comparing our lives against everybody else. So what actually ends up happening is what's true for other people becomes true for me as well. So there's all these competing truths in our lives that eventually destroy us. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to lead you not into truth that is necessarily comfortable for you. He's going to lead you into non-negotiable truth. Notice the second half of verses 13 and 14 and 15. He says, he's not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Time and time again in Scripture, as we've been talking about in this series about the Holy Spirit, you see the interdependency of the Trinity. That God is one essence and three persons. God is one, but he is Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are distinct, and they have different roles, but they are in community together. And Jesus is saying, it is better for me to go because the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to be a part of your life always Every moment, he's going to bring acknowledgement of the gospel. He's going to remind you of my righteousness that I have lived on your behalf as I advocate for you. He's going to remind you that, that God is bringing judgment on the ruler of this world that keeps tempting you. And he is going to guide you into truth. And it's not just his. It's mine and it's the father's because we're in this together. We are interdependent. And so the question is, what is the truth that the Holy Spirit speaks? Jesus told them in John 14, the very beginning of this conversation, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what the Holy Spirit does is he reminds us and he guides us into the truth of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done, his ways, his work, what he has declared over you, his love, his sacrifice, his humility. He reminds us of Christ. See, he reminds you of Jesus' forgiveness when you are struggling and feeling guilty and full of shame. He will remind you of Jesus' courage when you're feeling weak and when you're feeling passive. He will guide you to see the mercy and the passion of Christ when you're being selfish and not compassionate. He will guide you to see the generosity of Christ when you're being stingy or covetous. He will remind you of the wisdom and the priorities of Christ when you are following after foolishness and empty pursuits. And he will remind you of the fulfillment and the meaning that is found in Christ when you're feeling empty and it just seems like you're treading water. And what would have been very encouraging to disciples and to any of us that are going through trial and heartache and delays right now is that he will remind you of the strength and the eternal purpose of Christ when you're feeling persecuted and when you're facing hardship. See, the Holy Spirit comes to remind you and to guide you into the truth of Jesus Christ, his ways, his work, his sacrifice, his love, his grace, the words that he declares over you. And the question is, are you listening? But in order to listen, something has to take place in the front end. You actually have to ask. You have to ask him. In order to listen, you have to ask. And Jesus says in verse 24 of this chapter, something so encouraging. He says, ask and you will receive. He's saying to the Holy Spirit, ask and you will receive 
that your joy may be full. He's not saying ask and you're going to receive whatever you ask for. He's saying that though if you ask, you're going to receive what you need. And even if you're in the midst of trial and hardship and you're not at a place that you thought you would be in your life and you feel like you're treading water, you're brokenhearted, whatever the case may be, in that moment, you can ask the Holy Spirit and you can listen as he reminds you of Jesus Christ and he brings acknowledgement of the gospel. And the promise is that you're going to find full joy there. Even in the midst of trial, you can find full joy because the Holy Spirit is the wise counselor. He guides and helps with wisdom and with truth. So the question is, are you asking the Holy Spirit for guidance and are you listening? Because if you ask and if you listen, he's going to bring acknowledgement of the gospel and the promise is that you're going to find joy. Let's pray.